we're going to talk about acting our wage. Last night, I uh, tried to define that in the first service, and someone came up to me afterward and said, Dana, we all know what you mean when you say it's time to act your wage. We get it. We understand. And I think it's funny because um, we do know what it means. We know in our heads what it means, right? I'm going to spend uh, what I earn or less than what I earn, not more. We get that in our heads, but sometimes that information doesn't travel to our heart in such a way that we're obedient with it. And I can certainly testify that to having um, behaved that way many times over the course of my life, and even recently, quite honestly. So I stand up here in front of you today, not as someone who's asking for money for the church, and also not as someone who's a perfect example, but as someone who wants to share her story and some very practical tips that our family has used and many other families have used to break free from bondage, financial bondage. So we're going to talk about acting our wage and budgeting. And I know that some of you here have probably already gotten to a point in life where maybe you feel like we're doing okay financially. And so my prayer leading up to this message has been two things, either that God would um, strike you with a new opportunity, a new adventure, a financial adventure of generosity, or maybe um, obedience in a new area, or secondarily, that he would put someone in your life that you could disciple in their finances, that you could take what we're talking about today and use this in their lives. So before we get rolling, I would like to pray. Please join me. God, I thank you for this day. Lord, we're so grateful that we live in a country where we got to celebrate yesterday and all weekend long, really, the freedom that we have. We thank you for our veterans. We thank you, Lord, that in this country we have political freedom. We have spiritual freedom. We can open up your word and study it today without fear. But God, I also ask in Jesus' name that you would help those of us who are here today who are struggling financially to take that next step towards financial freedom. I ask that you would empty me of myself, Lord, that you would just fill me with your spirit, give me the words to share, and I just ask that you would let our hearts be open to your direction. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. All right. Well, I get to be up here to speak today, so I get to share statistics because I love statistics, okay? So we're going to take a quick look at five different stats about the current financial status in America today. And the purpose in sharing these up here on the screen is that I want, uh, I know human nature. I understand it. We're going to want to, um, I think there's a tendency to sort of maybe feel guilt or judgment about our current financial situation or things that we've done in the past. That's not the goal. But I do want to share some stats that give us a clear understanding of where things are in America right now as you think comparatively about your own situation. So the first one up on the screen The average American household debt is more than 136% of the household income. And the second one we talked about a little bit last week, for those those who have a credit card balance, the average credit card debt today is over $16,000. I think it's $16,455. Here's the deal. It's increased by 6.2% in the last year. You guys think about this. If... um, our body fat percentage increased 6.2%, we would notice and be frustrated, wouldn't we? If I, uh, I do have a mortgage, if I, my mortgage paperwork or my, my bill came in for the month and they had increased my interest rate by 6.2%, I would notice and be angry, wouldn't I? Think about this. This is an epic, um, difficult situation happening in America right now. This increase just since a year ago has happened in our country. And even worse, it's the highest in U.S. history. Uh, Let's look at the next statistic there. If you're 21 years old living in the U.S. today, you likely owe $12,000 or more. And in the next seven years, you could owe at least $78,000 in debt. 
the fourth statistic. Uh, before the Great Depression in America, only 2% of homes had a mortgage against them. Today in America, only 2% of homes don't have a mortgage against them. Now, my family and I used to live in Poland, and we noticed that a number of families who were our age at that time lived in apartments. They might have two or three children, but it was a very apartment-centric, maybe didn't even own a car, sort of, it was very common in culture there. And we asked some of our friends, why is that? Because if we weren't living in Krakow right now, we would be living you know, somewhere in middle America with a car, you know, with a, a two or three car garage house, in a suburb with two or three cars, and it's just very different here. And they explained to us that culturally in Poland, you could not take out a mortgage on a home unless you had 50% to put down on that house. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would guess a lot of us in this room wouldn't have a mortgage if we had to put 50% down on that house to be able to buy it, right? So we're talking specifically about American culture and buying here and how it's unique to other parts around the world. So just a few decades after the Great Depression, as I said, only 2% of the homes in America don't have a mortgage against them, meaning they aren't fully paid for. And the last statistic I want to take a look at is an important one because it applies everywhere in the workplace, even here in the church, that nearly 60% of U.S. households are living paycheck to paycheck, which is to say if I were living paycheck to paycheck and Pastor Josh came into the office tomorrow and let me go, and I, I wouldn't be able to afford my monthly expenses because I don't have any money set aside to cover the things that just come up in life that I have to pay for. So six out of 10 of us are living paycheck to paycheck. And I don't know about you, those statistics, some of those really surprise me, some of them don't. And I think it's something that as I prepared for the message that I was grateful to get to share because the more I think about it, I kind of feel this uh, a righteous anger about it almost like there's an illness that we have in our culture that we're just okay with. And it's not even about my own righteous anger. I think it's about not pleasing God's heart to see his children, his creation struggling financially. I don't believe that's God's will for us. But hear me say, I'm not saying God's calling us all to be wealthy or rich and that he's just gonna prosper us. This is not prosperity teaching, but I don't believe he wants us to struggle. And I don't know about you, for me, any financial struggles I've had mostly were based upon stupid decisions that I've made. We're going to take a look at what scripture says about this today, and I love being able to look at the Bible and being able to look at practical applications and overlap them and see how God can move us forward. And I think that even though some of these statistics we looked at are frustrating, they probably aren't too surprising given that we had warning about this in scripture. Some biblical scholars say that Proverbs were written in 700 BC. There were warnings there about what it means to lend or to have debt or how we make financial decisions. God's not surprised by the situation that we're in. And because of that, I believe he's also the solution to get us out of any difficult financial situations as well. Let's take a look at Proverbs uh, 22.7. Pastor Josh taught on this last week. I'm just going to review it quickly. Just as the rich rule the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. And the word servant there was actually, in the, in the original translation, it was ebed, which means um, to be in bondage to, to be a slave, which is really difficult terminology when we stop and think about it. But if we're here today and we're in any kind of debt, we are in some type of bondage. We owe, and that means that we're servants to the lender. So again, the goal is not to create any sort of judgment or um, a sense of shame. The goal is to recognize where each of us is today and then to ask God to help us take that next step moving forward towards financial freedom. 
Because as Pastor Josh shared last week, we're not going to let our money tell us what to do. We're going to tell our money what it should do as we obey God. So I'm going to give you just kind of a theme, an overarching theme for what we'll talk about today. And that's the idea that you've probably heard before. And that is that if we don't have money to buy something, we're not going to buy it. It doesn't mean we charge it and pay for it later. If we don't have money to buy something, we're not going to buy it. Now, I want you to walk out of here today inspired and encouraged and hopefully full of a lot of ideas. And I even want to share over the course of my financial journey in life, there have been times where I've really been hit with that idea again of, wow, I don't have money for this. I know I shouldn't buy it. I've tried a variety of things to try to break that habit, both in my college years and even again into my adulthood. I remember trying... um, Back in 2002, my husband Chris and I had this um, a Discover card that I was in the really bad habit of using. It didn't feel like spending money. It was just this little plastic magic card. And I realized, okay, I need to stop spending money with my Discover card, but I don't want to totally get rid of it. Someone suggested I take an empty coffee can, fill it with water, put the card in there, and put it in the freezer so that uh, it would literally be frozen and I would have to let it thaw overnight if I was going to be able to use that card. I love the idea, and that might work for some of you. Unfortunately, I discovered I had memorized the card numbers, (laughs) so I wasn't able to break that habit as well as I had, but that might work for one of you. And even recently, as I experienced a, a season of greater financial freedom, this summer, though, the Holy Spirit still convicted me, like he might convict some of you today, and that is that I was just spending a little thoughtlessly, not taking as much time and effort into what we were spending our money on this, this past summer. And um, just to be real open, we were, all of my family lives out of state, so we spend a lot of money on traveling, on airline miles. So we decided to get a credit card to earn airline miles, and we pay it off every month. But something shifted in my brain, which was, if I buy this, I'll be getting airline miles, and then I'll go see my family, and that's a good thing, right? And I was a little bit out of sorts, and so we stopped using that this summer, and I felt that difference, especially in my um, purchases online through Amazon. (laughs) Because when it hit my debit card, when it hit that Chase account right away and I'd get a notification, I thought, gosh, I just spent that money instead of having to experience that at the end of the month when I paid that bill once. So I think that, you know, no matter where we are in our journey, we always have an opportunity to hear from the Spirit, to move forward, to see what God would have us do financially, and He will bless us as we lean in that direction. I do believe I will travel to see my family again and be able to pay cash for it. It's not a big deal. God takes care of that, and He's bigger than any um, credit card issues that we have. But in so many ways, you know, we have a, a generation of pretenders, if you will, in our country. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I was certainly that. I think a lot of people in their 20s are that way. A lot of people in any generation is that way. But you're going to look up here on the screen and I'm going to show you there are three kind of categories of people in their financial status that we see in the U.S. today. And I want to be careful about this because I don't really like categorizing people, but you might be able to place yourself in one of these. The first one is the category of people, the haves. The second category of people would be the have-nots. And the third category of people would be the have not paid for what they've got. <laughs> and I've been in all three of those. I was probably a have when my parents were taking care of me. The have nots, definitely the college years. And the have not paid for what they've got was definitely my 20s. <laughs> so any of us can identify at different seasons of life that we've been there. 
However, that last category, the have not paid for what they've got, regardless of age or wage, is an epidemic that's prevalent in the United States today. And in fact, scripture addresses this very plainly if we go back to Proverbs, like I mentioned earlier. In Proverbs 13:7, it says, one person pretends to be rich, yet has, what does it say? Nothing, yet has nothing. So I think, I feel when we read that, we can feel just really called out by the sense of there are a lot of things around me, but I'm not sure that it has any purpose for me. And that's not God's best for us. So we're going to turn that on its head. We're going to take a look today at three essential values that I believe each of us need in order to experience an increase in financial freedom in our life. So if you're taking notes, we're going to embrace the value of self-control. Who here likes self-control? Anyone? Okay. Can you say self-control? Okay, oh, that was animated. Someone over here is animated, thank you. Can we say it again with a smile on our faces? Self-control. Self-control. Okay, we're gonna see self-control as a good thing, at least in this situation. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And I don't need to tell you this. You know as well as I do that there's nothing like money to get in the middle of a relationship to cause problems. If we don't have boundaries or plan for our finances, the enemy, our enemy, Satan, can get in there and cause arguing and strife and a marriage uh, and parent-child relationships and friendships, whatever. uh, This is a place that that can really happen. So if we don't have self-control, we're open to attack from the enemy. We're also vulnerable to problems in our relationships because we don't have a plan or self-control for what we want to tell our money to do. So a lot of, you know, I think a lot of us experience this problem because we kind of have this little kid inside of us, right? A little kid who's saying, I want it now. And if you've Uh, If you've got nieces or nephews or if you've raised kids, you've totally experienced that in the checkout line, right? Like when they want what I want, like I experienced that. I want the Snickers bar every time in the checkout line. But we want that as adults too, although sometimes we usually want bigger toys than just something that's like a dollar in the checkout line. And that's whenever we're fighting that self-control, that fruit of the spirit within ourselves. And I'm going to say, again, I mentioned earlier, I don't like to categorize people But I have noticed some consistencies among women and men in our spending habits. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, that's totally fine. But I'm going to start with the ladies because I'm one of you and I think it's only fair. And ladies, in my experience, a lot of us, we just like to buy, 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 right? And we're just buying little inexpensive things. You may not even know that they're showing up around the house or you may forget about them and you don't feel it because it's just $10 maybe, let's say. The problem with that is, one... We, we're sort of taking that hit, that dopamine, that sense of I've spent some money and I got something for it and I love it and it makes me feel great, but then the joy of that goes away, if you will. Another problem with that is the fact that uh, we forget that the only way we really save money is to not spend it at all. We're not actually saving a lot of money. If we get something 20% off, we've still spent 80% of the value of the item, right? And finally, the easiest thing for me to forget is that when I make purchasing decisions, there are people I influence who are watching me do that. Young people, friends, peers, who are watching me do that and saying, well, if Dana did that, maybe I can do that too. Then we're gonna talk about men. And men, in my experience, um, oftentimes, you might not buy, 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 but you might enjoy the opportunity to make one big purchase at a time. If you look up here on the screen, 
You'll see an old picture. Uh, that is me in the picture. Ignore that. Look at the car. Um, <laughs> this was high school. So that's my car. My first car I had, it was a Dodge Neon. I'm totally aging myself. If any of you remember that car, little black neon. And it was paid for. It had efficient gas mileage. I owned it for five years and it only had 12,000 miles on it, okay? It was what I brought into our marriage. <laughs> and as newlyweds, Chris and I had only been married a few months. Again, I told you I brought this car into the marriage, thought I would have it forever. And uh, one morning, I woke up and I was in the habit of looking out the blinds of our bedroom to check the weather because I liked to walk, if the weather wasn't bad, to walk to um, campus. So I look out the blinds to see if it's snowing, if it's icy, if it's raining. And my car wasn't there. I turned and looked at my husband and said, where's my car? And I knew our neighbors and I honestly thought they stole my car, which is my first thought. And he had this forever etched into my memory response of surprise. Like, it's like, it was like a question. It was super awkward. Like, surprise? I bought you a new car? And I just like went, I remember just feeling like hot head to toe and bursting into like these angry tears, which is, I'm not a big crier. So that was pretty big response. I was like, it was paid for, da, 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 just on and on and on. He was like, but don't you like the new one, which was way more expensive. And no, I didn't like the new one. I, in fact, I refused to drive it. So I drove his car and he kept it and he loved the new car. Maybe that was his plan. I don't know. Uh, now that I think of it, that was his plan. But we ended up getting rid of that car because it had all this negative connotation in our marriage. And the next car we got, we did the 0% financing and we ended up upside down in that loan, you guys. It took us years to pay that off. We had stupid debt. That was stupid debt, a poor decision. And just to be fair, because my husband did give me permission to share that story, but that was a big mistake on his part. I've made a bunch of small ones that I'm sure equal the same amount of that. So I have to say that to be fair, but... That was a rough day, and I am thankful it turned into a great sermon illustration of what not to do. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm not saying don't enjoy life. I'm not saying don't buy a car. Uh, you can get a car with, like, sweet rims and the butt warmers and the color you want, and you can buy one for your mom, too. I don't care. But you need to do it for cash, and that's hard to say because... Um, you know, I have experienced that when the only cash I had was $3,000 and my car kept dying on me. But it was so worth it because I wasn't struggling month to month and we were in this process of paying off debt. So not only are we gonna, we're going to say no for a little while so we can say yes down the road. We're going to embrace self-control. But the next value that we're going to embrace, if you're taking notes, is sacrifice. There's another S word a lot of people don't like, sacrifice. But we're going to see what Jesus did related to sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 12.2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at that. For the joy set before him. Have you looked at this verse this way before? I hadn't until recently. He's talking about sacrifice and joy. When I think of sacrifice, I don't think of joy, but that is what Jesus' example shows us. The joy set before him was obeying his father to actually lose his life 
so that we could be reconciled to God and have a personal relationship through Christ. That's what motivated Jesus, and that's what we need to look for today is the joy related to the sacrifice that we need to make for financial growth. And I think a great definition of sacrifice is one that someone shared with me before, and that's the idea of giving up something we love for something we love even more. And see, the reason I love the topic of finances is because I really, I'm a very decisive person, and I love that when I stop and think about choices, there's always going to be one that I know that I know that I know I love more. And that's different for each of us, but that's because God made each of us different, and we have different values that we're passionate about. But when we really stop and take time to think about it, instead of spending mindlessly, we are able to be decisive and to identify what we love most and what we want to spend our time and money on. So I have some examples of giving up things we love for things we love even more from the, life, uh, the lives of some of my friends. Um, someone who loves watching cable television but loves having a debt-free Christmas even more, chose to give up cable television and not be paying for those Christmas gifts, you know, next April or May, right? Uh, Someone who wanted a bigger house in a different neighborhood, but they were really passionate about their kids being in a particular school in a particular part of the city, so they chose to live there and invest there because that's what they wanted for their community. And a family, or actually a person who um, liked to go out for lunch a lot, this was a recent example I heard of, He liked to go out to lunch a lot with friends and decided he wanted to pay off his car and could do that in a much quicker amount of time if he would quit going out for lunch and would brown bag it every day. Interesting point, I read an article recently that said that if during our career, if we would bring our lunch most days over the course of our career, we save $112,000. $112,000 over the course of our career. Wow. (laughs) I don't think a lot of us are doing that. So we're embracing self-control, sacrifice, and the third thing we need to embrace is planning. Everyone say planning. Okay, yes. Planning is a very great thing. I love to plan. I know not all of us here are planners. The fact is, though, just because maybe it's not a strong suit of ours doesn't mean we can't do it. If you have the Mercy Road app and you've downloaded that, uh, later on this week, you'll be able to look at the series notes and questions, and I've put on there some resources that are free that can help you make plans if you feel like that's not something that you're very strong at. There's no reason that you can't experience financial freedom. So we're embracing the value of planning. Let's look at what we read about in Scripture in Luke 14, 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? All of you have probably heard this verse before if you're familiar with the Bible. However, when we hear that verse, it makes sense in our brains, doesn't it? Well, of course I would make sure I have enough money before I did this. But somewhere in our hearts, I think it gets lost. Um, If any of you have ever been in the situation where You decide suddenly you want a landscaping project. The next thing you know, you're getting estimates for it and trying to find a way uh, to pay for that before you have cash on hand to pay for it. Or in the case of probably a lot of families right now, um, decided you would make the visit to our new Ikea in town, right? And then wound up maybe strapping a new sofa to the top of your minivan as you were heading home. I mean, these these things happen. Um, I get that. Maybe just go for the meatballs and have a look around and take pictures of the things you eventually want to afford. That would be a suggestion. But it's planning because we're telling our money what to do. We're not going to be in bondage one through debt, and our money's not going to tell us what to do. And there's no item in the world that can dictate how we spend our money. 
So we're gonna take another look at Proverbs again, at Proverbs 21.5. You can see where it says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. And that's why planning is so important in our financial lives because if we're quick or too hasty to buy things, oftentimes it's those impulse buys, right? That lead to buyer's remorse. I can testify to that in my own life. I think probably if we had a show of hands, Have any of you ever bought anything that you wish you hadn't bought because you purchased it hastily? No, none of you? Okay, all right, fair enough. (laughs) So yeah, we are tempted to be hasty instead of planning. And here's the deal. We can wander into debt easily, but we can't wander out of debt easily. The only way we can get out of debt is through a plan. It's not just gonna happen on its own without intentional planning. So this is where we're gonna get really practical. I would love to have lots more time to share about very specific steps on how to get out of debt. As I mentioned, you'll be able to find more uh, online on the app this week on the series notes and questions. But I'm gonna talk about two very specific things I think are key elements um, that that helped our family and a number of families that we know uh, experience financial freedom. These I did not create on my own. I learned these from Dave Ramsey in my 20s, and the Financial Peace University is a great program I would suggest to anyone. So the first step, is to have a $1,000 emergency fund. Now, I really probably don't have to explain why we need a $1,000 emergency fund. You know, um, kids put marbles in their noses and you have to go to the ER. You weren't planning on that happening, but you have to pay for that medical bill, right? Um, Or uh, this very week, in fact, I'm thankful our family has an emergency fund. My husband was on the road, he was out of state, and Monday morning I get in my car, and I get this little notification, something's wrong with it, drive it to the dealership, and I was, my battery was on its last leg. Had to, you know, paid cash for it out of the emergency fund, and we'll reimburse that. But thank goodness, that means we're still able to pay our other bills this week because of that emergency fund. So I know we all understand why, but the biggest question I usually get is, well, how? How am I gonna find $1,000 for an emergency fund? And I'll be real honest, I don't care how, as long as it's legal. This is really important, you guys. Personally, I've taken a second job before. Um, Our family have sold so many things on eBay and Craigslist. Uh, We had patio furniture we weren't using. Well, let's sell that stuff. I'd rather have an empty patio and have cash available if an emergency happens. Um, Furniture, sold a car. You know, there's nothing that's legal that isn't beyond you being able to get that $1,000 into your hands for emergencies only. And you know, you might even have a treadmill gathering dust. You might start looking at things when you go home today and look at them differently and recognize, yeah, this is something I have that I can replace with cash so that when life happens to us, things don't fall apart and create stress so we're not prone to spiritual attack in our home. And the second thing we're gonna do is something called a debt snowball. Has anyone here heard of a debt snowball? Okay, a few of you, great. This is something that you're gonna see up here on the screen. It looks very simple and it's not difficult to do, but I'll be real honest. This is something that our family used, um, gosh, maybe a decade, a little over a decade ago to pay off $80,000 of stupid debt. And, And I don't use that word a lot, but it was just stupid debt. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't even like a mortgage that we were, it wasn't even a home value that we were investing in. I don't even know what it was, to be honest, but I know that it was hard work to pay it off and it was totally worth it. And so I want to share how to do this. So we're going to take a look at Jane Doe's debt up here on the debt snowball. You can see um, with a debt snowball, 
And if you go, if you Google that snowball, you can find this empty form that you can print out and fill in with all your own information. You just put in there all the things that you owe, the least amount to the smallest amount to the highest amount. And the reason it's called a snowball is because as we pay off the debt, it starts small, it's this little snowball, and it builds and it builds and it gains momentum and it's literally just rolling downhill and just killing all of your debt. And it's a very exciting experience to walk through. So Jane owes $500 to Visa. She's been making a minimum payment of $25 a month. Well, she's done this thing called a surplus, which is after she has her emergency fund, she finds another way to get $300 a month. She's getting real intense, very passionate about this, maybe taking a second job, maybe driving for Uber. I don't know. We can talk about a couple of those opportunities here in a minute. But she decided to take $300 extra a month and apply it towards her minimum payment. So look at that. She has $325 of a snowball payment to pay off her visa. She pays that off in like two months' time, basically. Um, so when the visa's gone, she pays off a MasterCard. She's still paying that minimum payment on the medical debt. The MasterCard's paid off in about two months. And by the time that's paid off, she has $405 every month extra to apply towards the 50 for the medical debt. And together that's $455. That bill's paid in about two months time and she is free of that debt beyond you know, a mortgage or whatever else she might have. What's exciting is I've seen this work really well with $100 or $200 a month of surplus. And I'm telling you, this is something that can change generations if you're able to take care of this now. And honestly, I shouldn't say if you're able to take care of this now. God is able to take care of this now through your obedience and your willingness to do this. I know people who've added a roommate, rented out their basement, driven for Uber, do dog sitting, do all kinds of things to bring in that little bit of surplus every month to knock out that debt. And this is where the rubber meets the road because the more passion that you can get about this, the faster it gets done. It's very exciting and you can experience God working in you and through you as you experience financial freedom. And I get worried about when I talk about this because sometimes people's eyes glaze over and they'll say, yeah, you just don't know my story. You're right, I don't know your story. But the fact is, we want to be able to honor God and to trust him and to recognize that maybe we got ourselves into a mess, but he can help us get out of it. And the thing that's gonna motivate you is having a big enough why. You've learned a little bit about how. And sometimes the why develops as you go. If you look up on the screen, I'm going to show you a couple of the whys that developed for our family. This is my son, Blake, three days before his first birthday. I went in to wake him from a nap, and I couldn't wake him. And as I held him up, I could see that his face was deformed. He looked like a totally different child. And he had a rare... Um, bacterial infection in his ear spread to the membrane of his brain. And within two hours, he was having surgery. And they told us, if he lives, he will never be the same. He will never develop. Um, there was a 50% chance that he would live. And once he made it past that, this was the moment, we were reconnected with him and he lived through surgery, but we didn't know what was ahead. So our why for paying off debt really skyrocketed because I needed to leave my job and learn how to give intravenous medications to Blake's heart through the night. We had an in-home nurse for a while. We didn't know how we were gonna pay for medical bills, but I'm so thankful for that experience because it forced us to be financially disciplined. And then as Blake healed, and if you've met my son, you would know that he is miraculously healed from where he was at this point. 
As that happened, over the next two years, we paid off those $80,000. We got radically focused on it. And then we got, my husband and I got this um, calling, this real intense desire to adopt. And you'll see the next picture. This was our next why. This is Mackenzie Lynn, our daughter. And we wanted to adopt, but we had just paid off all the debt. And um, we realized we didn't know what we should do, but God had called us to it. How could, he, how could he help us do this? And so we started asking him to help us be creative, to have a surplus. I started blogging about adoption. We hosted some fundraising events. And lo and behold, over the course of a year, about 65 families helped us pay cash for that adoption, which was such a blessing, not only because of who McKinsey is and her life, but also because if you know families who've adopted, the financial weight of that can be so significant that it really affects your marriage and your parenting. And once we started, once we had those whys figured out, as a family, we were a little bit, we started being less inward focused and more outward focused. We recognized, oh my goodness, we're really passionate about this online church thing. You'll see the next picture here is what online church looked like about a decade ago. And God just stirred up this passion in us as a family. And the only way we could afford to become missionaries was to host an estate sale at age 27. So on one Saturday, from my home being full of everything, my car, my kids' play set, art on the wall, serving spoons, you name it, was all gone within eight hours. And we went back to the house. Our house was sold as well. And we had one check to fund this dream that God had put in our hearts. And I'm so thankful for it because it expanded our vision, our understanding of who he is. And we realized that debt-free living is truly an adventure. So my hope would be that some of you here today would get crazy. That you would say, I know God has called me to more. God, I want you to give me a big why. I don't want to be sitting thinking about how I'm going to pay my bills month to month. I want to care a lot more about what my legacy looks like.